Dreamers, imagine coming to the United States of America at the age of 11. Such was the case with Juan Escalante. He was recently featured in the New York Times, and he's been fighting the good fight for immigration reform for quite some time. And it was really a pleasure for me to be able to speak with him today. My apologies for the audio quality. It's not that great, but still the content itself is great. So I hope you enjoy the show. I asked Juan, if you had to define yourself in the third person, how would you do so? What makes you, you? He's been doing immigration work for the past 10 years after he realized that he was undocumented and for a significant portion of his life, he's just dedicated every single spare second to this cause in order to raise awareness about a lot of the struggles that immigrants and undocumented immigrants go through in, in order to navigate the United States system. Uh, immigration system and as well, uh, you know, how does the pursuit of the American dream actually look like uh, when it's not portrayed through the lens of a, of a film or, or, or a movie that you may go see at, at a theater. One well, also right. likes Hawaiian pizza and black coffee, <laughs> so he's a very cool guy. He likes to strike up conversations whenever, but, you know, he also prefers his, his laptop and Twitter quite a bit. I told one that I could definitely relate with him on the coffee bit and quoted a line from Twin Peaks. I'll take my coffee black as midnight on a moonless night. Ooh, I always say <laughs> that, you know, I like my coffee black like my soul, and my mother always says, don't say that, you're trying to well, go to hell, and I'm like, well, like, that's a joke. I'm like, you know, that's funny. The next question I ask Juan is, how does the removal of DACA affect him? How does all of this affect him? Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the complication here uh, when it comes to immigration and DACA and all these sort of things, essentially, like, the lack of information or perspective that people often have about this kind of stuff, right? You know, through the years, I've engaged with conversations where I've asked people, how do you get a social security number? Or if you wanted to apply for U.S. citizenship, what office do you go to? And often what you find is that uh, because, you know, U.S. citizens, natural born citizens don't often have to go or experience those specific circumstances throughout their lives, they don't have a readily available answer. To them, it's just sometimes, or more often than not, it's an application that you may get at a post office and just send it through. Um, and, you know, for me, the DACA, you know, situation, the DACA program as a whole, um, it's obviously something that uh, has been abstract, where I've witnessed it be abstract in the minds of a lot of my friends and colleagues. And I say this because DACA, as a word, it's already an acronym for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program that was initiated by, by President Obama in 2012. Uh, and what the program does and what it does for people like myself and close to 800,000 other people uh, across the United States is that it provides us with three basic things. Number one, a work permit. Number two, the ability to obtain a driver's license in our respective states of residency. And number three, it shields us from deportation for up to two years at a time. And I think what's important about that is the two years. Every two years, people have to go to the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Office, or otherwise known as USCIS, which is what I like to call the big pushing arm of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, file an application, meet a very specific set of criteria, like lived in the United, the United States before you were 16, have uh, residing in the United States before the year 2007, lived, proved that you lived in the, in the United States for five continuous years without interruption. Uh, and you have to essentially surrender a lot of personal information to back a lot of your claims, right? Um, for me, it was bank statements for other people, uh, and this is true, uh, it's video game receipts because, you know, they didn't have a bank account and they just purchased everything with cash. I had to interrupt one right here and ask him, to elaborate on the video games. Video games, like somebody literally oh, got really? from GameStop. Yeah, because uh-huh. that, wow. I think another one of the very specific things is that you, in order to qualify for this program, you need to prove that you were present in the United States the day the president made the announcement. So that was June 15, 2012. And this young man, uh, and this was reported by a gaming blog, uh, I think the, the title is Kotaku, and anyways, this young man didn't have anything to prove that he was physically in the United States. And he came up with a receipt where he had bought like an Xbox membership or something like that or another. 
and that's what allowed him to enter the, into the program. But to kind of get into the, the meat of things, you know, this program is renewable every two years, which means that after meeting the criteria, you know, sending the application in, which, you know, carries a, a fee of $465, then the, the fee currently went up in price. It's now $495. Uh, that fee, that's just purely the fee. If you choose to hire an attorney to represent you or to help you out with, with the paperwork, you may incur other legal costs. I had to just confirm here that it was every two years that they had to pay that fee. Every two years. And then imagine on top of that as well, you know, having to pay for a driver's license two years. I, I often tell my friends that I'm, I've had more driver's licenses probably than even you in this, by this, by this point in my life because of how many of them I've been, I've, I've been have to renew. Uh, I'm about to renew mine probably in a couple of months after my renewal process kicks in again. So you're subjected to a background check. So the Department of Home Security takes all your information. Subject to a background check, and if you're approved, then you're into the program, and you get three benefits that I mentioned at the top. Um, and then you're able to kind of coordinate your life in two years at a time, you know, because then you have to start the process all over again. And, you know, one of the big caveats of this whole thing, you know, outside of the benefits is also the timeline. You know, you if you renew, and for some reason there's a clog in the system or the application is not renewed by no time. You could essentially time out of this program for a very brief period of time, which could be a couple of days, a couple of weeks. I've heard people that timed out of this program for a couple of months and your work permit expires, your driver's license expires, you could get fired from your job. You're not shielded from deportation for that brevity of time. And, you know, it, it carries very real life consequences for a lot of people. And I think that when you really put all those things you know, on a on a bigger screen and you kind of see the impact. You're talking about the ability to drive, the ability to work, the ability to like exist without the constant fear of potentially being deported. All those things weigh on you, you know, physically and psychologically. And at the same time, you're expected to perform just as good, if not better, than your American counterpart because there's no way for you as a DACA beneficiary or, or a beneficiary of this program to obtain legal permanent residency or that that means a green card or become a US citizen. Like there's no there's no secret passage, there's no obstacle course that you have to, you know, jump over. They're just they're just isn't a pathway. Period. Now, in keeping with the theme of this podcast and the shoes of, go ahead and imagine what that would be like coming to a new country as a kid and then finding out, well, it was actually good news that you had this new program, but it was still you are having to renew something every two years, and nothing is really that stable for you. And you do have to work just as hard, if not a lot harder, let's be honest. So my obvious next question was to find out what's going on right now and how does it affect you? What's Trump doing exactly? What has he done? And I was actually showing my ignorance in my question to him about, you know, what what is actually going on here and how are you affected by this? Yeah, well, I think... Taking a step back and, uh, and I, well, actually, if I look back in, in the past couple of weeks, you know, the DACA program has been terminated by uh, President Donald Trump. This was mainly a directive that came as a result of a threat of a lawsuit by several states, Republican-led states and their attorney generals, especially telling the president that if he did not end the program by an arbitrary deadline that they set up, which in this case was September 5th, that they would sue him. And, for, and take the case to court and that they were confident that the courts would, you know, terminate the program for them. All right. This kind of had me a little bit confused. Um, I hadn't known that some states were attempting to sue Trump and saying he had to do something by a certain deadline. So I asked Juan to just elaborate on that. Yeah, you're, you're talking about nine states uh, led by Texas. Uh, Texas, specifically, uh, their attorney general, Ken Paxton, who was essentially, you know, the, the, the main leader of this coalition of states. Uh, I guess it's important to note that towards the end of this, as we approach this deadline, I should say, September 5th, one of those states, Tennessee, their attorney general, whose name escapes me at the top at this moment. Herbert Slatery III. I had to look that one up. Backed off. So he, he dropped himself off from the lawsuit. Uh, gotcha. Um, Due to, due to a lot of significant pressure from a lot of his constituents and from a lot of, like, residents of the state. You know, this lawsuit exists. It's a threat that has been issued against the, Donald, against the Trump administration for two weeks in the, for a week, excuse me, to the lead up. So the first week of September, so I would say from August 30th to September 5th, there's all these 
maneuvers, you know, from the press and from people and speculation as to whether or not he's going to terminate the program, how he's going to terminate it. And again, you know, for those who are not familiar with, you know, the immigration process, there's a lot of fear going around because people have bought homes through these past five years and the program has been in place. You know, right. lease cars. Like I have, I have a lease uh, to your Corolla under my name. They have school loans, credit card debt, and you know, uh, some of them have are helping their parents pay their, their mortgages or they're paying their own mortgages. And every single day it was like this, like fire drill exercise because nobody really knew if he was really, if Donald Trump was really going to end the program A. And two, what were going to be the conditions, right? Was there going to be a delay like the one that exists right now where, you know, the program has ended, but the president has given a six-month window for Congress to take legislative action and say we're going to pass a legislative solution, and I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, was he just going to terminate it altogether so that the people who renewed up to this point, they can keep their permits, and the people who haven't renewed, then that's it. You know, the people who have been fingerprinted, you know, in, for their renewals, I guess I, I missed that in the introduction. Yeah, you have to be fingerprinted, you know, by the federal government in order to obtain this benefit. You can finish the renewal on the people who haven't been fingerprinted. So, like, there's all these, like, you know, scenarios that, you know, I have gained out of my, in my head and multiple people have gained out in their heads about, like, you know, how this is going to play out. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, September 5th when we found out that the president will terminate the program with a six month window where people are allowed to essentially renew the program. I mean, their, their permit saying essentially if your permit expires, you know, before March 5th, again, another arbitrary that, like deadline that's been set up here, you can renew that permit as long as you submit your application by October 5th of this year. So oh, you're wow. talking about this window of time. So if your permit were to expire, say, March 6th, you can't renew. That's just it. I guess to kind of take it to, like, the next level, just so that people really fully grasp, like, the urgency of this, that's only if your permit expires before March 5th. Okay, so just in case you're a little bit lost, if your permit expires before March 5th, then you can go ahead and renew. You have until October 5th to renew it, and you'll have another two years. However, if it expires after March 5th, March 6th, and beyond of 2018, then you can't renew at this point in time. So, for example, say that your driver's license, and I'll put it in terms so that people can visualize it. If your driver's license were to expire before March 5th, then you, the government says you can renew this driver's license as long as you, you, you know, you come back to us with the renewal, the renewal fee, the renewal application and all the details that, that, you know, come back with it, you know, again, you know, make sure that you, you have your, your paperwork in order and everything else that comes along with it by October 5th of this year. And remember, the, the program ended September 5th. They're saying that you have a month essentially between September 5th and October 5th, you know, if you qualify for the renewal to get it all done. So you can expect a couple of things. One, this limits the amount of applications of renewals for a lot of people. If your permit expires and if your, you know, quote unquote driver's license was to expire in April or May, you don't qualify for this renewal. Period. If you do, then you get two extra years. But this leaves up a significant portion of the DACA beneficiaries out of the possibility of A, applying for renewal, but B, at least a six month window for Congress. A Congress that has seen multiple iterations of bills to address this very same program mean problem for the past 16 years, and I'm talking about a bill known as the Dream Act, and mm -hmm. having acted on it, one, and two, a Congress that can, you know, that, that still has to, you know, pass any sort of meaningful piece of legislation in, you know, the beginning of this administration in the year. So, you know, I think what, what really needs to be understood here is that President Trump Paid to the pressure of 68, and instead of ordering his attorney general, who he appointed himself to go and defend the program in court, you know, he caved under the pressure of the threat of a lawsuit, A, and then B, he ended this program without a legislative solution to address the problem. Just a reminder that this was recorded on September 20th of 2017, and I'm doing some post edits right now on September 24th, 2017. So, Things may have changed by the time you listen to this episode. And that opens up all kinds of issues, you know, and not just because of the, of the, of the possibility that people are going to lose their work from it and they're, you know, potentially going to be exposed to be, to, to be deported. Um, two things that have been mentioned 
by Department of Homeland Security officials saying that if their permit expires, they're going to be treated like other undocumented immigrants so they could be subject to, to um, deportation. But the question is, in the meantime, has also tweeted out, you know, something that that if Congress doesn't take action in six months, that he will go ahead, right? And then he will revisit the issue. So why does he need to revisit the issue? If he could have just left the program along, let me go go along, and then tell Congress that they have a timeline to pass the legislative solution. What he essentially did was, you know, this very thin tactic of, you know, repeal and replace. What he did was that he repealed, and he has to replace. And there's no certainty that there's going to be a replacement unless we ourselves go out there and, you know, as, as DACA beneficiaries and as a community and as a country and fight for this. And that's why you're seeing all kinds of outpour support from celebrities, like, you know, all the way from Cher to the Kardashians and anybody in between, and business leaders from anywhere from the CEOs of Target, Walmart, and even Tim Cook at Apple are saying that this is the issue of our time. The issue of our time. So a lot of things came to my mind as, as Juan was talking about all of these things. One, I thought about all of the things that have been happening just across the nation, and to be honest with you, on a global scale as well. I'll try to leave my own political commentary and bias out of it, although it's probably pretty obvious. But despite whatever loud shouts, huge marches, etc., that we do, it seems that things just keep happening that are quite honestly regressive and not beneficial for society. So I asked him about that. And I asked him, what, what's going to happen if, you know, they don't replace it? I mean, we're talking about almost a million people here. What will happen? And to add on to that, will it result in more of a, I don't know, type of police state? And his answer was very revealing. And to be honest with you, pretty scary. Yeah. So good question. I think that there's multiple things to unpack here. One, the federal government has my information, right? They know where I live. They know who I am. And I surrender all this information to them with the, in good faith, right? That I would give them all my information and subject myself to a background check if in exchange they gave me this benefit. And also with the understanding that none of that information was going to be used for enforcement purposes, right? So that, you know, even though that I was willingly giving all this, surrendering all this personal information that they weren't going to come after me, you know, and use it against me. I guess you know, if Congress fails to act in six months and the president doesn't follow through his promise of quote unquote revisiting the issue, you know, take that as you may, you could essentially already see a lot of what's happening around the country. You're seeing mothers and fathers being taken away from the US citizen children because of a parking ticket. Grandmothers, nurses, individuals who, you know, have built a life here in their country and, you know, all their life all, I mean all they lack is a piece of paper. And they're being deported to a country that they haven't seen in decades or that they may fear, uh, you know, for their safety. And, you know, I was reading something today in the Sacramento Bee. Uh, and, and, you know, today, I think September 20th, and the, the article is up there right now on their website about a man who feared deportation back to his native country. And I believe this country was Mexico. And the family said, you know, quite frankly, to the authorities that if they deported the man, that he will be killed in Mexico and get loud. The man was, you know, it's reportedly dead in Mexico. And um, I can't tell you, you know, the, the full details of it because of this. I'm, I'm halfway through the article, but I invite everybody that's listening to this to take a look at this. And this, these are the real-life consequences of what happened. Yeah. And what we're talking about here, to take it a step further and let, let it sink in, you know, I'm 28 years old. I came to the United States when I was 11. I spent 17 years of my life growing up in this country paying taxes. I went to school here, you know, middle school to high school. I have a degree in political science from Florida State University. I have a master's in public administration from, from, from Florida State University. And, you know, time and time again, what I've been told, you know, by this government, you know, and by Congress that, you know, the, the authorities that refuse to address this, this, this issue, um, you know, when it comes to the dreamers, the so-called dreamers, people like myself, you know, undocumented youth, um, is that, you know, we can get it, we can get our act together so that you can essentially integ fully integrate yourself to our economy and to our country, you know, even though this is the country that you grew up in. And, you know, I guess to fully answer your question is, you know, I'll, I'll let everybody listening to this podcast be the judge of it. If you look very close to the news as to who is really being deported, and I, I don't mean the, the quote unquote bad hombres that Donald Trump 
you know, always, you know, <laughs> brag about being deported. No, I'm right. talking about, you know, families. I'm talking about children. I'm talking about parents whose crime is, again, a parking ticket. And then couple that up with the idea that the federal government has access to the information of these 800,000 people. And again, go out there and, and take a look at some of these stories. You're talking about doctors. You're talking about PhD students. Uh, if you go to on our, on our website, americasvoice.org, which is, you know, the organization that I work for, we often highlight the accomplishments and the stories of these young people. And these are young people that the Trump administration is going to waste taxpayer dollars to go after. You know, it's not only, you know, cruel, but it's by every definition, you know, insane. You know, yeah. this, is the kind of, this is the kind of people that you want to integrate. They speak they're more often than not bilingual. They understand our political structure. They want to continue to uh, get an education. And they want to contribute back to their communities. Like, well, I just don't understand what the, the logic is that the, the Trump administration is. And, you know, I'll say, you know, a lot of my political opinions, and I keep them to myself. But I remind Juan at this point in time that he can feel free to express any political opinion that he has. But anyway, he does a pretty good job of keeping it very diplomatic, in my opinion. You know, it's nonsensical, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'll leave it at that. And I'll leave it at that because, you know, I fully believe and respect that, you know, in order to fix this issue, you know, when we talk about immigration, and, and, and this is primarily why I'm restraining myself from, from voicing, you know, political opinions, uh, sure. even though that's obviously, they, they, they may be quite obvious to the acute listener, <laughs> but yeah. Um, for both of us, yeah. Yeah. I mainly say this, and, and I say this in, in the most sincere way, because, you know, going to college and, you know, often being, you know, interviewed and questioned and putting myself out there in the public eye like the way that I do, um, I will say that I'm a firm believer that the only way that we're going to get through this is through talking. You know, and, 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 and I mean that in the way that we need to have very civil, honest conversations about what exactly is happening with our government, how these enforcement techniques are being applied, how much they're costing us as a nation, and what is the sensible approach to enforcing our immigration laws, you know, that haven't been updated in decades, and how can we as a nation come together and understand this issue and make sure that we're not just being pushed, you know, to understand this extreme rhetoric that gets fed to us by hate groups, by, you know, the, the neo-Nazis, the all-white or, 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 or whatever it is that you want to subscribe to, but really dig in and see the issue and yeah. understand that, you know, yeah, are there immigrants who, who in this country don't speak English? Yeah, my parents don't speak English. Are they bad people? No. Do they wish that they could have the opportunity to take a break from work and go and actually learn a new language? Yeah. But guess what? They don't have the luxury of taking a vacation or stopping from work because they're so concerned about being so right of the law that they're going out there and working weekends to make sure that they A, make ends meet, and B, to make sure that they continue to provide and cover all their expenses because they don't want to leave and be deported back to Venezuela, which is our home country, and, and a country that, you know, quite frankly, is undergoing some significant political and economic turmoil right now. So... You know, I guess that that's just kind of like my overview for everything is that this is way bigger than just myself because I can tell you my whole story and why I don't want to be deported back to Venezuela and why I don't feel that's right. But just like my story, there's almost a million other stories out there whose, you know, accomplishments, reasons for not willing to go back to their home country are way broader and, you know, in some cases, potentially even more impressive than mine. But what it really boils down to the humanity concept of this, A, the economics of this, you know, how much will it cost to remove 800,000 people from this country? And then B, whether or not we're a country that's willing to recognize the talent and the opportunities of, you know, holding on to this workforce and giving them an opportunity to, you know, use their talents to continue to improve our nation. At the same time that Donald Trump is saying, that you want to pass a bill called, you know, the race act so that will limit legal immigration in this country by only allowing the best and the brightest, by making sure that they speak English, that they have advanced degrees. And when you look at the, at, you know, when you, when you contrast one thing to the other, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a case for that bill. It's, it's horrible. I invite everybody to take a look at it, and it will do some severe damage, not only to our immigration system, but also to our nation as a whole, but rather... 
what I encourage everybody to take a look at is essentially like who are the people, what are their faces, what are their stories, what are their dreams and hopes, and what are they doing right now? You know, I mentioned earlier, I'm 28 years old. I've been doing this for 10 years. So when I started being an immigration advocate, I was 17 years old, fresh out of high school. And the reason why I became an immigration advocate was because I got a call from my college. They told me that, you know, we don't have a copy of the green card. And after asking my mother for that document, she, you know, so she put me in a car, we drove to near to the nearest college. And I remember vividly, you know, a young woman who was very nice telling her from across the table, you know, with a chart in her hand saying, if you have a green card, you're going to pay this much, which is in-state tuition. If you don't have a green card, you're going to pay this much, which is out-of-state tuition, three times as much. You don't qualify for scholarships. You don't qualify for federal assistance. You don't qualify for state assistance. And you're essentially going to have to pay out of this pocket. My mother was crushed that day. And she hugged me, leaving that office, crying. And that was the moment that I decided that I was going to do something about this because I could, not, I could just not let my parents' sacrifice go out in vain. We're talking about 2007. There was no doctor program. There was no in-state tuition. And, you know, the dream life was essentially like a far distant thing. And now, you know, 10 years later, I find myself, you know, answering some of the same basic questions that I had back then before younger doctor beneficiaries who right now are going to school, are working school part-time, and they're scared for their lives. You know, they embark themselves into these journeys, you know, trusting that this program is going to be, even though temporary, is going to give them enough momentum to cross that stage or get that promotion or save up enough money to help their family out. And now the rug is being pulled from underneath them. And, you know, I recommit myself, you know, to make sure that even though I do fall into this older spectrum and even though that, yes, I was able to accomplish my dreams and get those two degrees, that I'm not going to let those kids down by any stretch of the imagination. And just like I won't let them down, I'm not going to let my family down. If the dream that passes my parents or not, I'm probably not going to qualify for those benefits. Does that mean that I'm going to forget about them? Are there 10 million people in this country who, you know, are growing our food, taking care of children, you know, making sure that they clean our hotels or, or and, and are essentially a, a very big backbone of our, of our economy? No, I'm going to continue to fight because, you know, that's the beauty of this country. You know, we come here to essentially pursue whatever dream we set out for ourselves for. And my dream is to make sure that the parents Children, the families who are in fear of being separated or deported back to a home country that they may not, that they may fear for their safety in or that they may no longer have ties to, are given an opportunity at least to experience what it means to live the American dream. This brought up a lot of things in my own mind while I was listening to Juan talk. And well, there are two main things. The first one being instead of, you know, just the human aspect of it, just the whatever people think about race or immigration, whatever. Think about how expensive this is. What we're talking about here is taxpayer dollars, right? I mean, if we forget about everything else, let's get down to the brass tacks. What is it actually going to cost us? You know, especially if we have a police force going after these people who are, to be honest with you, just trying to go about their daily lives. The second thing, I think that this issue is a lot of times dismissed as being something like, well, we've got laws, you know, we can't let undocumented immigrants just be here, right? That's just the easy dismissal, the lazy way of going about it, right? And granted, we do have laws, and we have to have immigration policies in place. That's obvious. But I think we, we need to take into account all of these things, especially what Juan is making, you know, he's making some great points that we definitely need to take into account. And not only that, I think we should remember how this country came into existence. We weren't here first. Unless you happen to be a person who's Native American listening to this. Well, you were here first. Native Americans were here first. And guess what happened there? It was genocide. They were almost completely wiped out. So we need to remember that. I know that's part of history. That's a long time ago, but not so long ago that we can just do whatever the hell we want now. Let's not regress. That's, that's my main point here. Anyway, I just kind of had to talk about all of these things with Juan and uh, get his reaction. Yeah, no, totally. And, I, you know, to me personally, you know, as a beneficiary of the DACA program, somebody that could potentially, <laughs> that, you know, if the government, I guess, really wanted to, especially the Trump administration, uh, they, they could probably, you know, obviously come after me fairly quickly. I mean, my information's out there. I, I think over the years, 
that I've done this work has uh, I've been guided by, by by that very simple principle that you know if there's information out there that could help someone you know go to that school that they want to enroll in or there's information out there that you know there's a state law somewhere you know I live in Florida but you, you know through this work I've been I've been familiarized myself with various state governments uh, so if there is a, an opportunity for that students who obtain a driver's license through their state, you know, through, through their own state uh, laws, or if there is an opportunity for them to become engaged in local and state government and, you know, advocate for a specific piece of legislation and just help it along that much further, you know, those are important things. And, yeah. you know, it's not just so for the benefit, you know, like a driver's license is a benefit that I feel that oftentimes people forget, you know, how valuable that piece of plastic in your pocket really is. You're talking about something that gives you the ability to go from point A to point B comfortably as long as you do it responsibly, right? Without fearing that you're going to get stopped by the police and then be told driver's license and insurance, please don't have one. You may be subjected to deportation and the game is over right there. And then, and that's the life and the fear of millions of people in this country. And right now, specifically, it's the life and fear of 800,000 people who starting March, are going to gradually start losing the ability to drive, to work, and to, quite frankly, be able to contribute back to the country and the communities that they love. And I think, you know, something when we're having this conversation about, you know, practicality, you know, what it looks like to port 800,000 people, you know, going door to door, you know, I should probably correct myself because, uh, you know, the DACA program gives you one more thing, and I, and I failed to mention this, and I, and I apologize, but it does give you a social security number, which means to be in good standing for this program, you have to pay your taxes, period, end of story, right? And right. you can pay your taxes for those who also may not be attuned to, even when you're undocumented. And some people may say, well, how is that possible? Well, I'm going to tell you what, the IRS doesn't really care whether you have legal standing or not. They just care that you pay your taxes. And, you know, for somebody... You know, like my family, you know, thankfully for us, we, we've had a social security all along. And, you know, that may shock some people, but that's quite frankly the truth. We've, we've had a valid social security number due to the visa that we came here with. And, you know, we can get into the, the, the specifics of my, of my case and, you know, why that is late, you know, a little bit further. But for those people who, you know, are able to, because sometimes it really comes down to a decision as to whether or not you're able to even afford to do that or put, food on the table or cover living expenses. If you, you know, are undocumented in the United States and you go to the IRS and you say, I want to pay my taxes, they'll give you something called an ICN number or an ID number or like a tax ID number that you can pay your taxes through. So, you know, when it comes to practicality, are you going to deport people who are actually paying their taxes, you know, who are covered under this program? Are you going to deport your families who may have been able to go ahead and pitch in their fair share as well, who are not, and I may add, they're not going to see the benefits. Because guess what? They're undocumented. They don't qualify for, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, or any any sort of federal program when it comes to that kind of stuff. We're, we're, we can't even apply for uh, the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare. You know, we're not right. eligible for that. So yeah. you have to really, really think through this kind of stuff. And that's why, you know, uh, I like to have these difficult conversations with people and specifically with people that may disagree with me. As long as we're not sure. shouting and we're listening with our ears wide open, you know, I feel that there is some common ground there. Is it going to take time? Is it going to be difficult? Are some people going to be more difficult than others to come to an understanding? Yeah, absolutely. We're not going to agree on 100% anything. But sure. fundamentally speaking, when it comes down to this program, when it comes down to people like myself, when it comes down to, you know, passing the DREAM Act and essentially allowing us the opportunity to fully integrate into the society, look, you know, there's Republicans that agree, there's Democrats that agree. All I'm saying is that there's also Plenty of celebrities that agree, plenty of business leaders that agree, and, you know, everybody else in between who sees this as a smart investment into the future of this country. I wanted to get his thoughts on what some more common misconceptions were about immigration, about all of this in general, um, because I feel like there are more than we probably realize. Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, (laughs) I think when we first started chatting, uh, I spoke about you know, this line, you know, people often shout at immigrants and say, well, why don't you just get in line and wait your turn like everybody else? There's this line that exists 
somewhere in this country, and you know, I myself haven't found it, and I'm determined to. And the reason, uh, you know, what I'm even joking about this, because this line is a myth. It doesn't exist. Right. There is no way for anybody in this 11 million people to actually go out there and get in the line. If you told me, right, and I joked about this, about there being like a like an obstacle course, like we, like there was a, you know, the way to get into the line is like through this really hard obstacle course, and that's how you get in the line. People yeah. will probably go ahead and tra- take the time, train, and run through the obstacle course. All <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, but it's not, this is not a getting a passport application down on the post office, filling it out, and, you know, sending it back and paying a fee. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Right. You know, my, my parents don't have the opportunity to get to become a U.S. citizen, even if they tried. Like, even if you literally told them that like, they have to take a test and study really hard and pay back the taxes, there is no, there is no much. And, you know, that's why we need comprehensive immigration reform so that there, there, there can be a line, people can wait their turn, pay back taxes and, you know, whatever other stipulations the government puts in this bill. But right now, you know, this whole notion that immigrants don't want to get in line and they don't want to wait their turn and they just want free, the quote unquote free stuff, like, you know, uh, Jeb Bush one time famously said, there is no line. There is no free stuff. We don't come to the United States and get a, uh, I think it was Sarah Palin who said this one time that, you know, people, when they come across the border, they get a free soccer ball. None of that exists. It is just literally misconception and extreme rhetoric to feed into the fears that the stranger or the foreigner, right, somehow wants to get ahead of everybody else. One time I visited, you know, the, the great state of Ohio, and, you know, I love it out there. It's beautiful. And I engaged in a conversation with a couple of individuals, and I remember hearing something that was particularly striking. And they, these individuals, you know, had the very big misconception that, you know, even if you were undocumented, you were entitled to apply for, you know, a, a franchise, like a store, like a mini mart, and that, you know, the government itself did, you know, turn a blind eye on you and you did not have to pay taxes and they just handed those as long as you were a foreigner and that, that, that somehow U.S. citizens were being cheated out of applying for the same kind of stuff. And none of that is true. <laughs> none of that is true. And it just shows you, right, you know, how far and twisted, you know, a lot of these arguments that are made against immigrants are taken just right, so that people have this boiled down notion that we're out here trying to just, you know, rob them of their livelihood. You know, when instead, just to mention, a lot of, a lot of immigrants work day and night, pay their taxes, do right by the law for a chance to just even stay here under the radar like my parents. My parents, are, you know, I, I wish more people could meet my parents because they have to be a person to this day, you know, that is familiar with their plight or with their struggle or with their fears that hasn't said, I love your mom and dad. And it's not just because, you know, it's not just because they welcome me into their home or they treat me like I'm part of the family or because they have these great barbecues. No, it's because they fundamentally love what they do. They love their job. They own their own business. They love this country. And the only thing that they want is an opportunity to travel and see more of it. And because they don't have an ID, they're unable to do that. But they don't do anything else but do what they do day in and day out, which is sit in here with a smile on their face. And just as my mom and dad do that, millions of other parents who are undocumented take care of their children who are U.S. citizens, you know? And to, yeah. to, to just pragmatically, just to think, you know, that we could go ahead and destroy, you know, all these families just because we're going to enforce broken immigration laws that, as I mentioned, haven't been updated in decades, then, then, you know, we really need to start asking ourselves who we are as a nation, do we recognize what our values really are, and are we willing to take a very close look as to the way that we are trying to enforce, you know, something that is broken, A, and B, examine the cost of it, or are we just going to let all those things go by including our humanity, and say that this person doesn't belong here because he may, he or she may sound different than me, he or she may belong to a different religion, he or she didn't get in line, and then just let them go. I thought it pertinent to ask at this point in time if he thought there were any actual rational arguments from the other side, from the other side of the spectrum. Maybe not on the polar opposite end, but I'm talking about, you know, just some of the more rational, maybe 
somewhere in the middle type of arguments. People who don't necessarily agree all the way with him, but have some valid concerns about immigration. I think that there's some misconceptions out there. And I think it falls. I don't want to, you know, go into right versus wrong because even this debate starts like all kinds of, uh, it, it encompasses a lot of things that unfortunately like here that we don't have the time to get into it. But yeah, right. I think, yeah, I do think that the far right and all these groups that try to demonize immigrants often do so with a broad stroke. You know, they, they try to paint us all in one light that we're criminals, that we're just trying to get by a few jobs and whatnot. And oftentimes what happens is that it gets coupled that, you know, are there bad people in this country? Yeah, there's bad people all over the world, period. Sure. You, know, you may not like your neighbor. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately, these bad people do really bad things. And some of those things are indefensible completely. And that person should 100% be you know, subjected to the law and be deported. And I feel almost as if at times, you know, there's this notion that just because you're an immigrant and you must sympathize with that person and you must also want to, you know, keep him or her in the country. I think to fully answer your question without deviating is essentially that not all immigrants are bad. Are there people who should be removed? from this country who pose a threat to society and to national security? Yeah, absolutely. Am I going to defend those people just because they're immigrants? No. You know, like we, we need to we need to be sensible as to what exactly is happening out there. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is the give and take, right? It's like support them all or, you know, really understand what they're doing, what they're not doing and reform our immigration system so that it works in a way that's smart towards enforcement so that we can get the really bad people out of here. The, you know, gang members and, you know, people who have committed, you know, some very heinous crimes and, you know, really address the situation while understanding that within those layers of immigrants, there's also hardworking people that want to get in that so-called line, that want to, you know, file that application and pay their taxes and live free from the fear of constantly being Deported from the home that they may have purchased or deported from the community where they, you know, help their neighbors. And I will challenge people to essentially start thinking about, you know, essentially what does it look like to have all these people removed from this country? You know, is your neighbor undocumented? You know, maybe he or she is your best friend and you may not know that. You know, and you may have, do they, you may have been neighbors for, for, you know, de- for decades. And the truth of the matter is, is that that neighbor may not be comfortable, you know, to share as much information, as much of your story as I am with your listeners. But the truth is that there's 11 million people out there, myself included, uh, who are fearful of this administration and the tactics that they're employing uh, to carry out their extreme anti-immigrant agenda. And within that 11 million, there's almost a million people who are essentially caught in, in between the system because the program that the, that the federal government implemented under the Obama era is now being pulled away from them and there's no solution or affirmation or guarantee that Congress or the president is going to act in a timely manner to fix this, which is why, you know, it's going to be up to a lot of us, you know, the beneficiaries of this program, but also, you know, legal permanent residents, U.S. citizens, you know, people who are listening to this podcast can help alleviate a lot of fear and, it, and fix this issue if they pick up the phone, they call the member of Congress, they call both of their senators and essentially ask them to pass a clean dream act. Today, tomorrow, the next day, and this is the same exercise that we've been doing, you know, since the since Donald Trump got inaugurated, um, you know, as president of the United States. It's no different than that, except that the House changes. And you know, in in a democratic society, you know, it should be a responsibility to make sure that the staffers and our members of Congress know who we are by name. You know, what I always tell my friends here in Florida is that, you know, what can I do to help? I wish I was, I could do more. Everything that you need to do is that you wake up, you pour your coffee, you make three very simple phone calls. My name is Juan Escalante. I'm calling Marco Rubio and asking him to support the Dream Act. My friend, uh, my friend Daniel is a doctor recipient and he needs the Dream Act to continue to stay in this country. Please support the Dream Act. Thank you so much for your time. And if you do that three times every morning, I assure you, and you recruit other people to do this thing, we will have we would we wouldn't need six months. We would do we would probably do this in a lot shorter time, but we need the pressure. And we would have a very tight timeline between now and March fifth if you consider the amount of breaks that Congress takes.
to go back to the district as well. I wanted to take this time to remind you that if you are a dreamer or if you know someone who is and that person or you need to go and renew before October 5th, well, the clock is ticking. So please go ahead and do that. Uh, if you're a friend or you have a family member who needs to go do that, then I urge you to just let them know. Maybe, you know, it's possible they don't know and then it might be too late and uh, we just don't need any more added anxiety to our current state of affairs with everything that's going on in the country and the world. Plenty of good, but uh, some things that are, we'll just say, uh, a little bit stressful. All right, now it's time to try and find out exactly, I don't know, who this guy is. Who is Juan Escalante? So I ask him right now what an average day looks like for him. Oh, man. I was pretty boring. I just opened my computer and I started typing. No, I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, I guess the best way that I could put this would be to ask people to kind of like, close your eyes and visualize the problem. Imagine that you wake up in the morning and you don't know whether your mom and dad are safe. You have to essentially breathe in, wake up, shoot them a text, give them a call, and make sure that they're okay. Once you finish that, you know, you're essentially recharged for the day. Um, you move on to the next worry, which is whether or not they're going to make it to work. And the same thing for your siblings, because you live far away from them. You can't essentially get to them. And even if you could get to them, say that you lived in the same city, you know, there's not much you can do if they're taken into custody. So you deal with that, you know, from morning until night. And at the same time, you have to go ahead and you have to get ready for work. But at the same but, you know, parallel to that you start wondering, well, is my work permit going to expire? And if it expires, what am I going to do? What am I going to tell my boss? How am I going to pay the bills? So after you're getting ready for work, make breakfast, you know, you open your computer like I do, you sit down and you're immediately showered with, you know, what I want to say reality. And reality looks like a couple of things. It looks like the really bad and negative press and aspects um, that are often attributed to immigrants. So you have the Trump supporters, you have, you know, laws like Breitbart, and then you have, you know, Congress to deal with, you know, separate you all together. You start imagining, you know, Am I doing enough to protect my community? Am I writing enough? Am I sending enough emails? Am I calling enough people? You know, is my organization doing enough? What's going to happen? You know, if this bill passes or doesn't pass, uh, I'm talking about the Dream Act. Um, you know, what does this look like for me? And I guess, you know, obviously those are a lot of worries and stuff like that. But in between all that, it's a lot of going back and forth. You have a Slack channel where you communicate with, you know, a beneficiary from across the country. Then at the same time, you have hundred emails, you know, that happening really quickly because your job depends a lot on the media cycles. You have to respond to stuff. So if, if a senator says this or says that, you know, how do you respond? What do you say? What do you don't say? Then you start thinking about ways to engage the community. And then, you know, you want to do an action demand where you can travel to man. So you want to make sure that you have coordinators, you get on phone calls, you get, you go to meetings, you do video chats, you do interviews like this one. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, you close your computer, you have been texting with your mom and dad. They're okay. They're on the way back home. They promise you that they, they're going to call you when they get there to make sure that, you know, they haven't been stopped by the police. You make sure your brothers are okay. And you start, you know, essentially preparing for dinner. And then through all that, you may start scroll, scrolling to Twitter. You may find a case of a mother that was deported, um, you know, away from her children. You might find a case of a father of four U.S. citizens who may have been deported away from his children in, in, in rural Ohio. And that starts to weigh on you because it's really hard for you to not start feeling that even though you're enjoying dinner, that your parents are safe, that there's people out there who will continue, that continue to live in fear. So you take a shower, you get away for bed, and somehow you just convince yourself that you have to do it all over again the next day because you have to be brave and because you want to make sure that other people understand that even as really horrific things are happening around us, that we cannot stand still, that we not we cannot keep quiet and that we can continue to fight the next day until, you know, we win this fight. We're just about to the one hour mark with this episode. So per my MO with the In the Shoes of podcasts, I have to ask one if he were visited by an alien and was given about five minutes to answer the question of what does life mean here on Earth? You know, how do you view it? What's what's the purpose of humans here? And uh, one came back with this. You mean after I showed them a bunch of memes 
to try to explain the situation? To me? Yeah. Well, ex- well, hey, you. Yeah. But let's go. Let's begin with memes. This is a new one, so I love the novelty here. <laughs> let's go. I'm just saying, like, you know, an alien comes down. Like, what? Like, what are you supposed to do? Just straight up like talk to them and be like, hey, what? Like, I feel like I will be freaked out. And more importantly, like, why me? You know, like, there's a random person in Central Park, but. <laughs> You could just say, like, well, uh, Trump, you have you got, you may want to watch out for our government right now. They don't really, you know, uh, are you a legal alien immigrant from another planet or or not? You know, anyway, yeah. sorry. No, that that no, 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 you're, you're good. I think for me, it's just one of those things where, like, you know, what it feels like to be, a, you know, in this world right now is just, you know, obviously we take a lot of challenges uh, and sometimes they really seem like they're getting worse and worse, but. I think there's some value in the human spirit of fighting for what you believe in fundamentally, whether you're on the left or the right, or whether you're right or you're wrong. So we may be a nation that argues quite a bit, but at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that, you know, we continue to build in one way or another and, and continue to fight for what we believe in, whatever that may be. Sure. And uh, let's say Bailey had one more question for you. And Bailey asked, well, do you feel like there are more as you put it, good people as opposed to bad people. Is there more of that human spirit that you talk of, or is there more of the kind of darkness, for lack of a better word? I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm I'm one of those people. I just try to see this in everybody. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I do think that everybody has at least an ounce of good in them. It's just what they do with it, you know, or whether or not the truth exhibiting. So I don't think it's something to quantify. You know, good versus bad. I think, you know, it's kind of like that thing of like, you know, actions speak louder than words. So, you know, everybody's good and everybody's equally bad, you know, when it comes down to it. It's just how much of that goodness or that badness you try to exhibit. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of In the Shoes of. If you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel42 at gmail.com. Can't promise you I'll get back to you right away, but I'll definitely try and get to it. Anyway, thank you so much for checking it out. Until the next time, see you later.